Genesis 39, that's where we'll be in way of introduction. Last Sunday, we very quickly established five central kind of overarching truths about the story of Joseph that are essential to our understanding of his plight. I want to just take a second and recap them quickly. One, from the very beginning of Joseph's story, it was crystal clear that God had an important plan for Joseph's life. That's point one. Point two is that a portion of this plan had been revealed to Joseph through a divine revelation, specifically two dreams we have recorded in Genesis 37. Now, while God was short on the specifics, the overarching vision for his life was made clear. So one, God had a plan. Two, that plan was revealed to Joseph. Three, regardless of whatever would transpire in his life, this is important to keep in mind always when looking at, at the story of Joseph, he was always loved by his father. Yes, his earthly father, but as we'll see more specifically, his heavenly father, which is important to keep in mind for it's undeniable when looking at his story, number four, that God's sovereign will specifically yielded incredible suffering, and five, that Joseph's faithfulness and obedience to God not only failed to temper the severity of his circumstances, but in actuality ended up being the very reason his suffering continued and often increased. Now, as we dive into Genesis 39, Joseph's story has gone from bad to worse. As mentioned, Joseph has been sold into slavery. He hasn't been stolen from his house, hasn't been taken as a thief in the night. He's sold into slavery by his own brothers. Now he's been taken down to Egypt against his will and sold for a second time to an influential man by the name of Potiphar. We noted this last Sunday. But Potiphar, according to our text, likely worked directly for Pharaoh and was the captain of the Egyptian police force, maybe even being the chief executioner. Not only has Joseph been stripped of his status as his father's favorite son, but Joseph now finds himself in Egypt as a common slave, a nobody required to now serve at the fickle whims of a pagan taskmaster. <laughs> well, no one would blame Joseph for maybe at this point possessing a bit of a sour attitude. We noted last Sunday how we see the opposite reaction. First, Joseph. He is seated that while his situation was not anything he would have ever planned for himself, he did reason this. If God had allowed it, then there must be a reason behind it. While he's all alone, as a slave serving Potiphar, we're told very specifically in the first few verses of chapter 39 that the Lord was with him. And it's this perspective that Joseph is able to have that enables him to make the most out of an unfortunate turn of events. While Joseph is a slave in Potiphar's house, we're told that he's faithful with whatever's in his hands. This took some time. 
While the text may imply that this was maybe a few weeks, a few days, a few months at the most, it's likely years past as Joseph is a slave serving the whims of Potiphar that he's faithful, beginning at the bottom, working his way up the chain. Over time, Joseph gains the trust of Potiphar. Potiphar recognizes something. He recognizes that God was blessing Joseph, and thus we see that Potiphar did something wise. He recognizes God's hand of blessing is on this Hebrew slave, meaning that my house is being blessed by default. So what does he do? We're told Potiphar wisely promotes Joseph to overseer. If God's hand is on this kid, and I'm being blessed as a result of this kid, I'm going to exalt this kid. More blessing, more favor. Verse 6 informs us that Potiphar's trust in Joseph was so complete, so total, that, quote, he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he did not know what he had except for the bread which he ate. Though still a slave, by the time we get to the second half of verse 6, Joseph is, for the best part, a freed man in the home of Potiphar. So he's a slave, but he's got a measure of freedom within this particular household. The second half of verse 6, which is where we left it off last Sunday, we're told, Now Joseph <clears throat> was handsome in form and appearance. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast longing eyes on Joseph. And she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, look, my master does not know what is with me in the house. And he has committed all that he has to my hand. There is no one greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? This phrase, that Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, it's kind of an interesting phrase. The idea is that Joseph literally possessed a good-looking face and a rockin' bod. He was the full package. Eugene Peterson paraphrases this verse as, quote, Joseph was strikingly handsome. You know, this statement, handsome in form and appearance, we only find that phrase referenced of two other men in the entire Bible, King David, and interestingly enough, David's son, Absalom, Jacob, good-looking kid, Joseph, an even better-looking kid. How so? Don't forget, Jacob marries Rachel. And it's Rachel who's described the mother of Joseph in Genesis 29, verse 17, described, by the way, by the Holy Spirit, so you know it's legit, as being, quote, beautiful of form and appearance. It would seem that our man Joseph was the recipient of some good genes. I mean, imagine this 22-year-old as being a Jewish John Stamos. Just one look, and any woman would have said, have mercy. 
Yeah, that was a full house reference. Yeah, you got that this morning. There really shouldn't be a surprise with this in mind that Potiphar's wife would cast longing eyes on Joseph. Not only was, was Joseph a hunk, what you might call butimous, hot stuff, eye candy, macadocious, sexy, maybe even gorgy. I don't know what that one means. Or as the kids say, swankadocious. Yeah, go with me. But Joseph, good looking. But his position in this home made him available and easily accessible to Potiphar's wife. My dad always cautioned us as his sons. Time plus opportunity always equals trouble. If you have the time, but not the opportunity, you can avoid trouble. If you have the opportunity, but you don't have any time, you can avoid trouble. But man, when you combine time and opportunity, it will always yield trouble. Now, understand, there was no sin in noticing Joseph's good looks. Aside from this, there was no sin in, in Potiphar's wife being tempted. That said, this married woman set herself up for a tragic fall the very moment she allowed what she saw to foster a deep sexual longing within her heart. She saw Joseph's physical appearance. She saw, and what she saw, she found attractive. This attraction, it grew into a wanting. Her eyes stirred her heart, which then stimulated her imaginations. You would be correct in saying that this woman was going cuckoo for a Hebrew cocoa puff. Before we progress any further, I throw those things in, by the way, just to make sure you're with me and you're awake. I thought that was a good line, by the way. Before we progress any further, it should be pointed out that most temptations increase and they become all the more dangerous the very moment you allow what you see to become the thing you dwell upon. This woman's error did not occur when she saw that Joseph was physically attractive. Her error took place the instance she allowed herself to become physically attracted to Joseph through her longing for him. She cast longing eyes. It's not that she just saw, but she longed for Joseph. Friend, well, it's true. It's important you guard what you allow these eyes to see. I'm going to be frank with you. In our sexually inundated culture, guarding what you allow your eyes to see has become much more difficult to accomplish. Let's just be honest. Sex sells. The classification of what is pornography has been diluted. 
And therefore, our social norms on what is appropriate have been irreparably warped. That's the truth of our society. Let me give you an example. Today, Netflix, HBO, even just normal cable television, full female nudity has become so normalized in American media that Playboy, the most iconic men's adult magazine in history, has had to pivot their business model away from peddling smut to more journalistic pursuits just to attract an audience. Used to be that Playboy was novel. I get it on ABC after 10 o'clock. And so they're writing actual journalistic articles to try to get some type of an audience because I don't need Playboy to see it anymore. Something's happened in our culture in a short amount of time. It is so hard today to guard what you see, but you can guard what you long for. Here's the point. Today, this culture, you're going you're gonna to be hit from all different angles. All different angles. I mean, you can't guard what you see. I mean, unless you cut off the internet entirely, but then how do you do banking? Or you unplug the TV. You'd also have to refuse to drive down 85 because of some of those billboards. You couldn't receive the mail anymore or go to the beach or visit the pool. You would basically, if you're going to try to totally guard what you see, you'd have to black out your windows and never leave the house. That's the reality of the culture we live in. But you do, friend, retain the power to control what you choose to dwell upon. As Martin Luther famously said, you cannot keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. That's the truth. My dad always told us that if we happened across a good-looking gal, instead of sizing her up, checking her out, all of which fosters longing, he encouraged us to just simply say, good job, God. I mean, think about it for a moment. I saw it. I can either long and lust, or I can acknowledge the Creator. You see, what's interesting is that it's very hard for an acknowledgement of God's handiwork to transition into lust when that acknowledgement concedes her true identity that she's a daughter of the Most High God. I mean, if you want to undress with your eyes a daughter of God, you go for it. Just think it through. I think it's misguided. But there are those who try to excuse the actions of Potiphar's wife by claiming that such behaviors were culturally accepted in ancient Egypt. That what she's doing here with Joseph was just a normal thing. I've even heard people claim that her actions were in line with the sexual freedoms that women possessed in that society. Well, it is true that they possessed certain liberties. Eye makeup was invented in Egypt. Certain modern looks uh, were developed as well. But that position, that belief that excuses Potiphar's wife's behavior, it's ignorant because it fails to look at how the Egyptians viewed marriage. One of the interesting things about ancient Egyptian culture was their unique emphasis 
on the sanctity of matrimony. Unlike many of the other early societies who viewed marriage as, as basically nothing more than some type of a civic duty or a transaction, because Egypt were, quote, women equal to men, as far as the law was concerned, women possessing the ability to own property, to borrow money, to sign contracts, to initiate divorce. Women were even able to appear in court and testify against a man. And it's because that there was this equality between men and women legally in ancient Egypt that love and genuine affection between parties was something celebrated. Now, we don't know Potiphar and this woman's backstory. But historically speaking, it's likely that these two had been married for one reason. They were married because they had fallen in love. Like she hadn't been forced to marry Potiphar. It hadn't been some type of transactional prearrangement. This woman, at some point in the past, had made a decision she chose to marry Potiphar for love. Sadly, though, one of the inequalities that did exist within Egyptian society centered upon the definition of what constituted adultery. In that culture, adultery was defined as sexual relations with a married woman, not a married man. This meant Potiphar's wife was expected to remain faithful while Potiphar himself was free to, you know, have some side action. Now, understanding this dynamic, these two ideas, that adultery was a divorceable offense, and that at one point this woman truly loved Potiphar. You see, knowing those things, it makes her proposition for Joseph to come and to lie with her makes it heart-wrenching, honestly, short-sighted. You see, even in Egypt, what she was proposing her and Joseph do, it was not okay. Aside from the obvious consequences getting caught in such an act would have for Joseph, who's a slave and has no protections under the law, what she was proposing, keep this in mind, would place her own future in peril. If this woman was caught, she could lose everything. It's sad, but her lust clouded her judgment. And yet, what she lost sight of, Joseph, oh, Joseph saw with crystal clear clarity. We're told in response to her advances that Joseph, quote, refused and that word, it indicates an unwavering resistance. Now, before you simply gloss over that, keep in mind, Joseph, he's 22 years old. He's a virgin. And he's at his peak time of, of, of sexual drive. Aside from that, he's got a woman who's likely attractive, wanting to get into his pants. Aside from that, acquiescing to her wishes, you can imagine as long as they didn't get caught, would kind of play out favorably to Joseph. You know, he would receive certain favors. It would, it would be a good thing, have a practical benefit. And yet Joseph, our man Joseph, he doesn't entertain this proposal for a moment. 
Not even in the slightest. Instead, Joseph, we're told, refused her advances before then verbalizing to Potiphar's wife why he refused her. Notice the very first word out of her mouth, out of his mouth. He tells her, look, look. She was blinded and he could see the first word, look. While she had become blinded by her longing, Joseph Joseph could see how the story would play itself out. You see, Joseph could see that that even if they enjoyed this, even if they got away with it for a little while, there would be a day of reckoning and consequences some point over the horizon. Joseph knew. He could see it. He knew what he had to lose. How a moment of pleasure would permanently affect not just himself, and not just this woman, but specifically Potiphar. I also find it fascinating, significant even, that Joseph's rejection, this rejection of this proposal, he does it on the grounds that to do this act would not be an appropriate response to the kindness and the favor that Potiphar had shown him. Look back at our text. Look at his reasoning. He says, no, I can't do this. Why? My master, he doesn't know what is with me in the house. He's committed all to my hands. There's no one greater than I. He's kept back nothing from me but you because you're his wife. It was clear to Joseph, Potiphar's wife was off limits, but in his mind, he saw his freedom. He saw the responsibilities. He saw Potiphar's favor. He didn't deserve any of it. And yet, Potiphar had been kind to him. You know, in a profound sense, it was the grace Joseph had received that in turn became the motivation for his behavior. It's as though Joseph is saying to Potiphar's wife, your husband has been so good to me, so kind, so gracious, Your husband's favor to me? That's just a runt sold into the market. He took a flyer on me. His favor has been abundant. And you know, I really am thankful. Genuinely thankful. You see, I can't do this. Because to commit such a sin, it's unthinkable. Because it would run completely counter. It would send the wrong message to how I really feel. How could I harm this man and disappoint this man when he's been so good to me? Aside from this, notice how Joseph defines what Potiphar's wife is proposing. He calls it first, look at it, a great wickedness. In the Hebrew, this word ra. It's translated 442 times as evil, as opposed to the 59 times we find it translated as wickedness, or the 25 times we find it translated as wicked. We must ask, how did Joseph know such an action was wicked? And then he takes it a step further, and a sin against God, since the law wouldn't be given for another 500 years. I mean, adultery is one of the top 10, you know what I mean? 
But that comes 500 years later. So how does Joseph in Egypt, in this context, know this is wrong? Know that it's a great wickedness. How does he know it's a sin, especially a sin against God? Keep in mind, a sin is simply defined, this word, as anything that misses the mark. That's what the word sin means. It's an archery term. It's to have a target, to pull back, and to miss. You missed it. You missed the mark. It's an action in a spiritual context, an action, a behavior, something we do or think or feel that falls short of God's original design. Which then is interesting, right? For God's design of marriage predated the law, doesn't it? As a matter of fact, it's first established where? Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, when God said, that a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. See, Joseph didn't need stone tablets to understand that adultery was a great wickedness. Why? Because it countered God's design, God's blueprint for marriage. Adultery was therefore wicked, not because of the law, but on account it violated God's purposes, God's design, God's blueprint. Now, personally, I don't think it's an accident that we now refer to marital unfaithfulness as being an affair, as opposed to using the biblical title of adultery. You see how it's a little different? Instead of calling something adultery, we like to, well, it's, you know, an affair. And we do this because to call it adultery then classifies it in the biblical context as a sin against God and therefore a great wickedness. And let's be honest. While no one argues that committing such an act is okay, we call it an affair. Why? It lessens the severity of the offense. And you know, not to pick on just that one thing, but we do this with all types of things. All kinds of things. Words have meaning, and we've changed the way we, 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 we classify, we define, we change the words we use. For example, colorful language as opposed to profanity. Oh, this is color, it's profane. A lapse in judgment as opposed to calling it a transgression. Religious insensitivity, or what the Bible would call blasphemy. Male homosexuality in place of sodomy. Lesbianism versus fornication. Premarital sex. That sounds better than sexual immorality. Tipsy versus drunkenness. Stuffed versus gluttonous. Self-confident as opposed to pride. A white lie as opposed to a deceit, a bad choice, as opposed to rebellion. And, and that list can go on and on and on. And here's why we do this. If we can remove the biblical term and therefore definition, we subsequently detach the behavior as being a great wickedness and a sin against God. You see, if there are no wicked behaviors, then by default, there are no righteous ones. 
There are no wicked ones. There are no right ones. You see, removing God and how God defines such things leaves the individual now with the authority to define what is right or what is wrong for themselves. To his credit, Joseph did not play that game. He refused this woman's advances. Why? He correctly understood that sex with this married woman was a crime, not just against Potiphar or himself or this woman, but it was a crime against God and God's blueprint for marriage. Joseph rightly then knew it was evil. He didn't tiptoe around what it was. With this in mind, Pastor Damian Kyle correctly observes that what's wrong with today's Christian culture is, quote, no one uses the word wickedness anymore. No one, that is, but God. As we continue forward, please keep in mind two things about Joseph. What we've learned thus far. Joseph stood against this temptation because he understood first that committing such an act would insult the grace that Potiphar had shown him. And secondly, the act itself, he couldn't do it because it was a great wickedness and a sin against God. And this is why he says, how can I? Did you notice that in the text? He says, how can I? How can I do this? With all these things in mind, aside from the action yielding both a temporal and maybe an internal consequence, Joseph, he realizes that, that committing such a transgression, it wasn't consistent with his identity. I'm a child of God. I am part of the vine. I am part of this family. I am called to holiness, to higherness. And as such, how can I do this? I can't. I cannot behave in such a way. So it was, verse 10, as she spoke to Joseph day by day, that he did not heed her to lie with her or to be with her. But it happened about this time when Joseph went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were inside that she caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. And imagine what all of this must have been like for Joseph. He's already refused her initial proposal. But following that, this woman's persistent. Day by day, this horny woman's on the prowl, looking for a way to seduce him. And don't forget, his position as overseer meant, yes, Joseph is a slave, but he's required to maintain a measure of decorum around his master's wife. He can't just cut her off. He still has to be accessible. Every single day, this seductress is creatively crafting reasons for Joseph to be with her, around her, hoping that she can convince him to lie with her. A little extra perfume. Oh, I just happened to walk out in my nightie. I didn't know you were here. I mean, imagine how this worked. How this played itself out. She's unrelenting. Her flirtations overt. Though the easier path would be for Joseph to at some point just relent, give in. Our boy remains steadfast and firm. Finally, the perfect opportunity arose. The conditions were perfect for her most forceful approach to date. 
we're told that it happened. It, it happened. When none of the men of the house were inside, that she caught Joseph by his garment. This garment, this word garment, it, it implies an outer garment. But up to this point, her overtures have been subtle, probably even appeared to the outside to be playful. And this moment, her passions, her desires, they come out with vengeance. This time, she's not going to take no for an answer. She physically grabs hold of Joseph, preemptively trying to work off, trying to remove this garment, all the while demanding that he lie with her. Joseph realizes a forceful no isn't going to suffice. Despite the fact that he realizes he's in a pickle, probably sensitive to the reality that, that he doesn't want to add injury to insult to this woman. He, he, he's got to get out. So what does he do? He pulls away from her. He leaves his garment in her hand, and then he flees the house. Joseph knew that these actions may very well place him into a dicey situation. But as Matthew Henry once wrote, Joseph believed it was better to lose a good coat than a good conscience. And so it was, verse 13, when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled outside, that she called the men of her house and spoke to them, saying, See, he has brought into us a Hebrew to mock us. He came into me to lie with me, but I cried out with a loud voice. And it happened when he heard that I lifted my voice and I was crying out. He left his garment with me and he fled and went outside. So she kept his garment with her until Potiphar came home. Then she spoke to him with words like these, saying, This Hebrew servant whom you brought to us came in to mock me. It happened. I lifted up my voice. I cried out. He left this garment with me. He fled outside. So it was when his master heard the words which his wife spoke to him, saying, Your servant did to me after this manner, that his anger was aroused. Then Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the prison. It's been said that hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Well, for poor Joseph, this definitely proved to be true. Realizing that the object of her desire was not going to succumb, that Joseph was not going to play her game, that he would not be her boy toy, coupled with the fact that she was likely, obviously, experiencing a measure of embarrassment over being rejected, maybe even possessing a bit of fear that Joseph would maybe report the entire incident to her husband, this woman decides to strike first by concocting a story to cover her tracks. As we just read, Potiphar's wife claims that Joseph had been the aggressor, making an unwelcome sexual pass. Luckily, as she says, he fled. He fled the moment she mounted a resistance, the moment she starts crying out. But though he fled, he left behind his garment, which she now presents as evidence of her tale. Moses tells us, that upon hearing the words which his wife spoke to him, Potiphar, his anger was aroused, and he took Joseph and put him into the prison. Now there are those who seek to make the case that Potiphar's anger 
was aroused at Joseph because he believed his wife. I find that very unlikely to believe. Like if it had been, if Potiphar acts because he believes his wife's story, understand, Joseph doesn't end up in the prison. He's swiftly executed. I mean, he's trying to rape an Egyptian citizen as a slave. They just take him out, off with his head, done, quick, easy. You see, what's more likely, and at least consistent logically, is that Potiphar's anger was aroused on account that his wife's actions have now placed him into an impossible position. Aside from the fact that there are a myriad of holes in her story, not to mention the accusation didn't jive with the character and the reputation that Joseph had developed over time. Keep in mind, Potiphar is the chief of police. He's an investigator. He's not an idiot. Not to mention, he knew his wife. Sadly, the psychological profile of this type of sexual compulsion that we see within Potiphar's wife, it indicates a very strong likelihood that this was not the first time she had pulled such a stunt. My guess is that Potiphar was in a struggling marriage, man. I mean, no one, no one just wakes up and commits adultery. Adultery is often, uh, is often evidence, a byproduct of something that's been happening long before, that manifests in such a way. But I think this man knew his wife was, was a recidivist. That might even explain why he had promoted Joseph to the position. Because Potiphar knew Joseph's character, a godly, godly integrity. That he knew Joseph would, was the one man that would be able to be placed over the household and have nothing to do with the wife Potiphar knew would try to mack on him. Joseph proved to be true. And yet, and I know this is speculation, what I believe angered Potiphar was that because his unfaithful wife had made such a public spectacle of this situation, which is why Moses tells us she first takes the story to the rest of the servants before then bringing it to Potiphar, because she made this such a public spectacle, Potiphar knows he has to act against Joseph. Knowing Joseph is innocent, he's got to maintain some dignity. How could he side with a Hebrew slave? over his own wife. Though Joseph has done absolutely nothing wrong, as we've seen, this man has handled himself in a very admirable, noble way, a way we should emulate. He is still, once again, finding himself being stripped of his standing and now sent to the king's prison, which is where we'll pick up things next Sunday. Now, in closing, I do want to take the final few minutes to discuss what we do learn here from Joseph's example as to how to handle temptation. First, like Joseph, when faced with a temptation, the initial key, if you're a note taker, you can jot these things down, is to refuse to even entertain the thought. While Potiphar's wife allowed her passions to stir concerning Joseph, Joseph wisely refused to give any thought to committing such a sin with her. 
his, his reply. How can I do this? That was his perspective. He refused. Look. Because of the identity that Joseph possessed as a representative, as a child of God, the choice that Potiphar's wife was presenting to him, it was unthinkable. You know, it's been correctly stated. And always keep this in mind when faced with a temptation. It's always easier to shun the bait than struggle in the snare. So first, refuse to entertain the thought. Secondly, like Joseph, it's then critical when faced with a temptation to remain steadfast in your refusal. You know, the reality about temptation is that like Potiphar's wife, they don't often take no for an answer. It's not like you refuse once and then the temptation's like, okay, we're cool. We're done. You're on the record. No, instead temptation and the very real enemy behind those temptations. Once you refuse, what happens? Those temptations increase in their relentlessness and tenacity. This is why, like Joseph, there may be times in such a situation where drastic times demand drastic measures. Thirdly, like Joseph, when faced with a temptation, it's important you recognize the consequences that will result. How often we become blinded. In his famed short story that centers upon a series of, of demonic conversations about temptation, C.S. Lewis wrote in, in the screw tape letters, two demons corresponding, he writes, quote, whatever their bodies do affects their soul. It is funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. Joseph said, look, he could see. You know, I've never met someone who with the passage of time comes to see that succumbing to their temptations, the temptations of the enemy, actually made their lives better. I've never met that person. How important it is that we think through the full consequences of our decisions before we make them. How that decision will affect your wife. <laughs> you might be angry with her, well, think about how it'll affect your kids or your church, your friends. I've seen people who have lost everything by succumbing to a temptation, 90% of which they didn't realize they would lose. Think, remember, fourth, like Joseph, when faced with a temptation, it's essential you realize the essence of the act itself. Aside from the practical consequence, Joseph was able to resist this temptation to sleep with this woman because he rightly understood the act itself. It wasn't innocent fun. Joseph knew that adultery was wickedness and therefore a sin against God. Never forget this. At its core, the temptation of the enemy is designed to get you to question the goodness of God 
and therefore the wisdom behind his commandments. The very first temptation to Eve. What has God said? He's holding out. He doesn't want you to be like him. To question. God's holding out. Don't buy in. Realize. Don't forget. Realize the essence of the temptation. Finally, like Joseph. When faced with temptation, it's necessary you remember the very grace that has afforded you the life you presently possess. We're in Genesis. Why? Because it is a book of grace. Grace oozes every page, every story. Every story is an illustration of more grace. And Joseph refused. Why? Because of Potiphar's grace. You see a lesson in that? You see, Joseph resisted these advances because he understood committing this act against Potiphar was inconsistent with the life he had been given. Grace was his motivator. And in much the same way, friend, please realize this. Before you give in to a temptation, please consider how good God has been to you already. You see, a temptation, is it's a lie to try to convince you that God hasn't been good, that he's been holding out, but step back and realize everything I have, I don't deserve at all. It's his goodness. It's his grace. It's his favor. It's Jesus' work on the cross. I need nothing more than this. See, here's the thing about a temptation. The fundamental strength to overcome a temptation does not reside in you. Your ability to overcome a temptation does not reside in your strength to prevail. The ability to overcome exists instead in the absence of need. Let me explain this. The most effective way to resist whatever lie that temptation is promising is to rely on the life you've already been given in Christ Jesus. You see, when you commit adultery with this other woman or man, the problem is, is that from your perspective, You've lost sight of how lucky you should be that that woman or man that's married to you, why they're there. Like, you're lucky. You outpunted your coverage. You're an idiot. You've done great. The lie is that this is better. But the only way you can accept that that is better is to lose sight of how good this is. And it applies to all kinds of things. I can resist temptation. You won't if there's a void. If there's a need if you're incomplete, if you're longing, Satan will always present something to try to fill it. To this point, I can't say it any better than William M. Taylor. So I'm just going to close by reading what he says to this because I think he nails it. He says, the best means of saying no to sin is to say yes with the whole heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you, dis- if you wish to dispel the darkness, hmm, you will bring in a light. Our refusal to sin will be then only the outworking of our satisfaction with Him. The consequence of our delight in Him 
and not the result of any outward compulsion. Here, young man, is the key to the whole position. Fill the heart with Christ. And when the tempter comes, he will find it so preoccupied that there is no room in it for him and his seduction. It's Jesus. Be filled with Jesus. Let him satisfy. Let him fill. It's this world that leaves you thirsty. Jesus promised the woman at the well, you'll drink this and you'll never thirst again. So Father, Lord, we ask,